Arve, and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a Roman history podcast from La Trobe University. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me today is Dr. Rhiannon Evans, an Associate Professor in Classics and Ancient History at La Trobe University, and with us today is Dr. Emma Southern, co-host of the History is Sexy podcast and author of A History of the Roman Empire in 21 Women. This is episode CCXIX, Hispala Fakina and the Bacchanalia Conspiracy. Hispala was instrumental in bringing the dangerous cult of Bacchus to the attention of Roman authorities, ending a conspiracy that was threatening lives and the rule of law. Her story is one of the topics of Emma Southen's new book, which I can heartily recommend, and she begins this interview by telling us how she chose those 21 women. Here's Emma Southen. Well, we were wondering how you chose the women that you decided to put into your book. What was the winnowing process like? Did you have a long list and then narrowed yes. them down? It was a very long list initially and then narrowed down and then ended up with some kind of face-offs at certain points. So I always knew that I wanted it to be as much of a chronological history of Rome from beginning to kind of arbitrary end point as possible. I wanted there to be a representation of every period of histories. I didn't want to just skip over the whole of like the Middle Republic or the Early Republic, which are kind of the hardest periods to find people. And I knew I didn't want people who were already famous, basically. So a cut down process was anybody who's already had a book or a TV show about them or shows up too much in I, Claudius or anything like that was cut because I wanted it to be people who are underrepresented I suppose so I really wanted to choose people from around the empire and then when I got down to kind of a list of about 25 or 30 it started being who is the more interesting story and chronologically so there were some people that were cut because they overlapped chronologically with other people that I wanted to keep in because there's always the temptation to do like loads of women from the late Republic or loads of women from the Julio-Claudian period or where there's loads of amazing stories that you can tell but perpetuates that whole thing that I think everybody is always trying to talk the public out of, which is that Roman history only lasts about 100 years and Cicero's in all of it. So whenever there was a conflict, I would always choose the one that I thought people wouldn't have heard of, basically. That sounds like a great mechanism for, for mm. choosing. And was it always going to be 21 or is that a happy accident? It was initially going to be 15 and then my publisher mm. persuaded me to talk it up to 21 um, because they have like a miniature series of a history of the Roman a history of X in 21 women. So they had like four yeah. books in that series. So they talked me into 21. It has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, 15 wouldn't sound the same. I think you <laughs> had to miss out. <laughs> yeah, and I definitely got to include some people that would have got cut. So, yeah, I'm happy that we got there. It sounds a bit like you were spoiled for choice, though. Yeah. Part of the problem that I see when talking about the Roman Empire is that it's very easy to gloss over the story of women, all but a few. Did you find that you were scrambling to get content? For most of it, no. For most of it, I was absolutely spoiled for choice and was having to cut people for space, basically. Once I knew that I wasn't going to be telling like the political and military story of the expansion of Rome, I wanted it to be about living in the Roman Empire and how that changes, then it's easy. Like There's so many stories that you can tell and so many that I cut out. 
the only time that it was really hard was that period of the kind of early and middle republic when all you've really got is like Livy. <laughs> so this bit that we're going to talk about today um, <laughs> when finding women who had more than one sentence written about them because in most other times and most other periods of Roman history you can go to archaeology, you can go to epigraphy, you can go to papyrology and you can find people who exist but that period has much of a less of an archaeological and epigraphical base and also only has a very few sources who are only interested in telling the story of all the wars that Rome won and mm. all of the decadence that then ensued. <laughs> so that was the only time when I was really like, whose story can I tell that doesn't have a Shakespeare play? Yeah, well, you see, what you've just said there reminds me of, I was just searching for my favourite sentence in the chapter which is all of this brought much military glory to Rome, which is of no interest to me at all. <laughs> I had a little giggle at that point. <laughs> um, yeah. That seems to sum up the approach here, that that had so much focus and also yeah. a certain viewpoint that this is all the Romans ever do and this is all they're concerned about. You saw it when it was going on with that TikTok thing last year, mm. that men always think about the Roman Empire and apparently all they think about is military conquest and Marcus Aurelius. But there's so much more to the Roman Empire. You know, it's a thousand years worth of people's lives and you can tell those stories. It's not like they're invisible or lost or not in the sources. It's just that people deliberately choose, for the most part, to prioritise the military history. And part of that's because that's what the Romans enjoyed telling about how great they were at war. But we can choose not to tell that story because I really have no interest in what they were doing in battles. <laughs> There's loads of people who are really good at like how long their staffs were and what their armour looked like. And they're like incredibly interested in that. And they are much better at it than me. So I tell the different stories. So what are we going to be learning about today? We're, we're going to be talking about a person that you have in your book called uh, Hispala Facina. And I hope I've pronounced that right. Can you just correct me there? <laughs> <laughs> I always say Hispala Facina. Um, wow, there we go. Right, way off. <laughs> quite like a hard C. <laughs> yeah, I've tried to teach Matt about the hard C. But... Yeah. There you go. See School you. of Cicero. Yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, yeah, um, we are inconsistent, mm, it's mm. true. This is why I don't really worry about correct pronunciation on the basis if we're not saying Cicero and Caesar right, like, doesn't really. <laughs> mm. Who was she and what era of Rome was she living in? So Hespula is a, a freed woman who is living in Rome in the 180s BCE. So this point at which Rome is really starting to massively expand. We know she's a historical person because we have her in more than one source, which is nice. But she mostly is known about from the history of Livy, who tells this amazingly soap opery story about her involvement in bringing down an Italy-wide religious conspiracy involving orgies and forged wills and murders involving the cult of Bacchus. And she is... Included in his story, presumably, because she is included in all of the Sonatas Consulta, the story about how this conspiracy was brought down. But Livy just tells this really dramatic theatrical story about how she intervenes to save her boyfriend from being initiated into a cult against his will and thus brings attention to this secret nighttime cult of orgies that is occurring in Rome. Mm. One of the uh, things that I like about how you've written your book is how 
you take what, say, Livy tells us about a person, but then you tell us everything that he doesn't tell us about the person and why that <laughs> matters. And then you yeah. tell us about how we all think about that person today and how we're wrong. And then you might swear <laughs> a bit. Yeah. <laughs> but, you also, but, you, but you always uh, put a great amount of context in there, which I, I really like. So can you tell us about Hispola, what Livy tells us about her background, but how yeah. we should think about it? <laughs> so uh, Livy tells us that she is basically a high-class whore, what used to be an enslaved sex worker who has been freed at some point. And the Facchiano family are a family that does exist. There's epigraphic evidence of them, so we know what family she belonged to. She's freed and then she has continued working as a sex worker on the Aventine in Rome and apparently has got a reputation as being kind of sought after, basically. Most translations that we use were done in like the 20s and 30s by men from Oxford and Harvard. <laughs> and so they like to tidy stuff up or they're not very good at talking about women very often. So they always translate it as courtesan. But the word that Livy uses just does, does not mean courtesan. Like there is a word for courtesan. He uses a word that means like low-class prostitute. Everybody tries to make her sound a bit better than she is. But she is continuing to work as a sex worker, which is a hell of a job in the Roman Empire. It is a legal job, like it's taxed, is something that people do all the time, but it is also something that primarily enslaved and freed people do, which means that you can't access a lot of legal rights as a person, whether male or female. So it's a grim job that she's doing, but it is one that she has semi-freely chosen I suppose like she has continued in it when she has won her freedom and theoretically could have stopped she's in a relationship as well isn't she yeah she is so she has a boyfriend who is an equestrian called Abutius he's under 20 we know that so he's presumably younger but he lives with his mother and his stepfather who withhold money from him so they don't let him have his living expenses so she gives him his living expenses and she is also applied so that she can make him her beneficiary if she dies in a will which is like the nicest thing that you could do if you're a roman like they really seem to understand leaving stuff to people in a will or giving people access to property in a really romantic way which i think is kind of delightfully weird so they have this kind of very loving relationship everything kicks off one day when he tells her that he can't come and see her for a couple of weeks because he has to do a 10-day celibacy fast so he can't have sex for 10 days because his mother has pledged him to be initiated into the cult of Bacchus and the story he's been told is that he's had an illness at some point and his mother had made this vow that if he survived she would initiate him into the cult of Bacchus and he had survived so now he had to do that in order to fulfill his mum's vow and so he tells Hispola and she flips out basically she absolutely loses her mind and barricades him into the room and won't let him leave until he promises that he absolutely will not join the cult of Bacchus because it turns out that she knows what that is all about and she does not want her boyfriend being either murdered or having sex with men or uh, getting involved in a terrible conspiracy to forge a will or give false evidence, which are the three things that apparently happen at the Court of Bacchus. 
So she's saving him from a criminal gang. But I guess we've got another woman in this who's a bad woman, his mother. Yeah, it's all very theatrical. Like the whole setup feels a lot like a nice play. And all of this is within the context of Livy. This is the point, like the paragraph before he starts talking about this is the paragraph where he says, this is when luxury was introduced to Rome because there's a big triumph of Gaius Manlius and all of these luxurious things have been introduced to Rome as a result of these wars in Asia, like women who play the lyre and gold and tables with one pedestal. (laughs) (laughs) which is apparently shocking but this is like the point at which luxury and people have started to morally go downhill as a result of all of the gold that's coming into Rome and then he tells this story and then we have this elite woman Deronia who is revealed when Abutius goes home that and says oh I'm not going to do that Hispula says I shouldn't that she did not make this vow and actually her and her new husband are plotting to have Abutius initiated into the cult of Bacchus so that they can either murder him or have his reputation destroyed so that they can steal all of his inheritance from his father. (laughs) It seems like a very convoluted plot, but they seem to be under the impression at least that the Bacchus rituals, the cult of Bacchus, is bad news for whoever is involved in it. If somebody goes to these ceremonies, they will be in trouble. Yeah, so there's two kind of descriptions that are given by Hispler and then kind of filtered through Livy as to what is going on at these rites. And so there is one which is kind of feels very classic, kind of music and singing and people getting into ecstatic trances and dancing around and then drinking wine and having sex. And then in the background of that, they're also apparently murdering people. And there's these descriptions of them setting up contraptions that are dragging men away into caves to murder them and people being killed ritually in the ecstatic trance and then there is a second version which also includes and this is the real problem when it comes to the attention of the roman authorities people also having conspiracies to undermine the roman state so simultaneously people are having orgies and men having sex with men is something that gets brought up a lot which they're very unhappy about and also people are standing off to the side with a glass of wine and discussing how they're going to perjure a court case later that week. That feels like how you go to church and after the service people stand around outside gossiping. Yeah, while they're washing the blood off their hands from the murders that they did. Yeah. (laughs) It's kind of unclear what Doronia and the stepfather think is going to happen, but they definitely think that this is going to somehow get rid of Abutia. So he's either going to be murdered or he's going to be defiled in such a way that he won't be able to claim his inheritance because when he confronts them about this there's such a big fight that they kick him out of the house this does suggest that they might have a limited understanding of consequences of actions because they kick him out of the house assuming that that's the end of the problem but he just goes to his father's family who are very well connected he turns up there and is like my mom's kicked me out and they go oh no what happened and that escalates the situation into the political sphere so Livy's version of their events suggests that they thought maybe half a step ahead in any of their plans. Quite what they thought was going to happen when they kicked their son out, I don't know. Like an incompetent crime family, basically. (laughs) Yeah, they're not great. Poirot would have them instantly. One thing that was interesting about this part of your book is that Hispola isn't the only influential female character in this I was surprised just how many there are. There's like an aunt, there's the mother of the consul. There's all these people that Livy doesn't dwell on quite a lot. 
but they're still present in this and must have had quite an influential role to even just get a mention. Yeah, and the interesting thing about the story of how it all comes to the attention of the console is that it is entirely the conversations of women in casual contexts. So Hespola tells Abutius and then Abutius tells his aunt and his aunt then attempts to contact the consul via uh, his mother-in-law. The consul basically says, oh, if you invite her over for tea, invite her over to have a conversation, feel out the situation, and then if it seems like something that's worth pursuing, then I'll drop in. It's the conversation of women in social settings, basically, that is completely invisible in a lot of sources. Like when people say accusations were made or this came to the attention of the consul, all the way through Roman history, this is the kind of everyday conversation and social networking that is kind of hidden within those sentences. And this is one of the very few times when you get to see it because Livy seems to enjoy telling this story so much. And because it involves a series of weird ruses where the consul just kind of pretends that he's just dropping in, but actually he's coming on purpose in order to find out what Abutia is saying. But when we say that women are involved constantly in Roman politics and they are constantly involved in the careers of their children, of their husbands, of their nephews, of the people that they are just interested in, this is the kind of thing that they are doing all the time. They're having tea with people, they are making deals, they are persuading the mother-in-law of somebody to persuade their son-in-law or to persuade their daughter to persuade their son-in-law. You so rarely see how it works, but this is a time when you actually get to see women talking and women influencing history in a way they did all the time. Yeah, they're really visible as part of those networks there, aren't they? We sort of see more formal versions of it where we might get some idea of a woman being involved in a contract or, you know, Cicero talks about his wife selling some property or something. We know that's going on, but this is a better example because we get a story alongside it as well. So we can see the nitty gritty of how they're working (laughs) in the cracks of these official positions, which most of the formal history we've got is about the people in those magistracies or wherever. But we can see how they would move between and around those and, and as you say, have great influence over them. So it's, it's a wonderful example of that. One thing that surprises me about this story is at this point, when the consul decides he wants to hear what is happening from Hispola herself, she seems to be intimidated, but she seems to have enough of a grasp on what she should be doing to get assurances that she's yes. going to be okay out of this. And not just okay, that she ultimately does quite well. She does. She actually does really well out of it. Like the consul of Rome sends soldiers to pick her up and take her to his house, which is terrifying. And she's simultaneously terrified that she's meeting the consul and also that something bad is going to happen to her if she tells what's going on with this. And so she has a massive panic attack and refuses to speak, essentially, until the consul agrees and promises to protect her from any repercussions. She initially asks to be relocated out of Rome so that she can be safe somewhere else. And he says, no, it's all right. I will promise you that you can live safely in Rome. Like I will give you personal protection. And he does build her an apartment that she can move into in his mother-in-law's house and has some stairs moved so that you can't access it from the outside. Which is an interesting bit of information about the architecture of Roman houses. (laughs) She manages to get that out of him before she then gives her description of what is going on at the 
these orgies and he's very surprised and she says that these are going on five times a month in Rome and that <laughs> all of these noises that apparently people are hearing in Rome constantly are not perfectly innocent orgies but are in fact very bad nighttime religious orgies. Yeah, I was quite surprised by the scale of it. And part of me wonders if the anger of the console was mainly because he didn't get invited. Because it seems so <laughs> many people involved in this. Yeah, there's like so many. 7,000 people eventually are like arrested for it. I mean, I always say knock off a zero when a Roman is giving you a number. They certainly say that it's massive and they say that there are lots of people who are involved and they at the very least want to claim that it is a massive, massive conspiracy. They claim that there's so many people involved, it's basically a second state, which is classic Roman overstatement. But is it the sort of thing that they should have been worried about? Do you think that this was just a cult that got a bit out of control? What's your take on things? See, this is the question, is that it's really unclear as to what it is the actual problem, because we have a couple of speeches that the consul gives that describe what the problem is. And his problem in those speeches is that people are getting together and intriguing together and are making these deals to undermine the sanctity and the trustworthiness of the state. So they're agreeing that they're going to perjure one another. They are forging wills. They are making deals that should not be done in the nighttime. That should be daytime innocent activity. And they're also generally upset about large gatherings, which they don't like as a general rule anyway. And he says something like, there's no reason for this many people to be gathering for anything other than a census or an election. And when you get to the published Letters and Sonatas Consultum, which we have, somebody inscribed it like a million times on stone in bits of Italy, and some of them have turned up, which is very useful. So we can see that Livy is not wildly off base with what he's saying and what they're concerned with is not having more than a certain amount of people gathering, not having male priests, not having things happening at night without permission, basically. So it seems that what they're actually concerned about is big gatherings of people. And some people have interpreted this to be that they were worried about sedition in southern Italy because this is not that long after Hannibal and other people think that this is a genuinely religious crackdown that they want to stop the cult from changing basically that the problem is not that the cult of Bacchus exists but that men are involved and they need to keep men out of it but priestesses are okay honestly the evidence from Livy at least is so blurry my best guess is that it is a show of strength from Rome because they are still expanding. They do not have particularly strong control over Italy still. And it is a show, particularly from the consuls, that they're going to crack down on something. They send in the military to deal with this, which is obviously balmy. We have named people that get arrested. They put guards on the street of Rome and various other towns in order to, what they say, prevent arson, something that had not been brought up at any point before that. So it feels like a big old show of Roman military and state level power that they can control people and that they're still in charge. No one is going to be secretly meeting at night, no matter how good your excuse is. That's really interesting because there's a lot of confusion about what's going on here. I mean, it's a mystery cult, so we always have confusion. And on the face of it, it looks like it's about late Republican Augustan 
it's all these anxieties coming together. I mean, wills, legal stuff, always worry for the Romans, things going wrong with that. Stuff happening at night, as you say. But the idea that young men would be in danger, all of the nightmares that Augustus would have had, which I don't think it's a coincidence that that turns up in an Augustan text. No, and this is something that I try to say as much as possible, which is that all of the texts that we have about the beginnings of Rome right the way through to the late Republic are through the lens of Augustus and through the lens of Augustus's attempt, successful largely, to completely rejig the state in an image of his own creation and to retell the history of Rome so that it fits his image of what they should be doing and what is right and good. And so you always have to have that lens of why does Augustus want it told this way, basically. Mm. And the focus on the sex element and given his crackdowns on adultery, on people not being married and living lives that aren't producing useful children for the state, it kind of explains why Livy's version is so obsessed with sex and why the Sonatas Consultum doesn't mention sex at all. <laughs> it's really interesting that the kind of heroine of this story is a sex worker. Is she kind of outside of the expectations of what we have for so-called good women, I guess freeborn women, <laughs> elite women in this period? I can't quite get my head yeah. around what is going on there in terms of the way Livy writes it, but also the position for a woman of her status in the mid-Republic. I mean, there's those two layers both yeah. going on with Hispola. It's interesting, and you suspect that this is one of those times where he can't write her out because she's in all of the historical documents. She's in all the historical documents because eventually she is given a financial reward and then given basically citizen rights. So she's allowed to sell and dispose of her own property. She's allowed to live without a guardian and she's allowed to marry a free born man without him losing his status. This is in all of the like non-Livy evidence. So he can't write her out of the story. He has to include her and then he has to deal with the fact that she's not the woman that he would ideally like her to be. Like what he would ideally like is for her to be like a nice elite senatorial ideally perhaps patrician woman who was shocked and horrified by everything instead he has to include that she is a sex worker but not dwell on it that much instead he really emphasizes her goodness and the fact that she is shocked and horrified and her response to being confronted with this consul is pure horror and terror because she's such a good person that the idea of being in trouble with anybody is terrible to her so he has to write around the historical facts basically <laughs> but do you think it kind of works for him in a way because things have got so bad in rome you know this luxury and yeah. this decadence that even a sex worker has identified that this is a problem <laughs> so ultimately in this we don't know anything about hispila's life beyond this one event we don't even know if she stays with her boyfriend do we it's just keeps it to the console keeps it to the conspiracy and then off to the next bit of history for livy yeah as is the case with a lot of women in the roman empire you do not get like a good long biography of them from beginning to end is very rare even women that you think you have like a massive biography of, they usually have a five or 10 year period where you have absolutely no idea what they're mm. doing. <laughs> yeah, so we know one big incident in her life. We can kind of infer backwards into her life under slavery, but we have no idea what happened afterwards. She was given loads of money. She was given like 
100,000 ounces or something and the right to dispose property. And we know from one line, so it says when she moves into the consul's mother-in-law's apartment, she took her own enslaved people with her. So we know she owns people. Presumably she lived in Rome and had a nice life, I hope. She wasn't Mm. like hit by a cart the next day or anything. (laughs) But no, we don't know what happened to either of them which is a shame, but it's something you have to get used to with writing about women in history. To be honest, you get like one incident from their life and then you hope that it went okay after that. That was Emma Southen, author of A History of the Roman Empire in 21 Women. And you have been listening to Emperors of Rome. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any friendly neighborhood podcasting platform. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can like the Emperors of Rome on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans. I am at Nightlight Guy. And the podcast is at Rome Podcast. This podcast was recorded and produced at the La Trobe University campus in Melbourne, Australia, on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. So until the next episode, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic. And thanks for listening. <laughs>